Greetings, my good people. How are you? What's happening? What's going on here on a Monday, January the 21st in Hero Lord 2019, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. If you're off, hope you're relaxing and enjoying here in the Northeast. It is currently five degrees with a wind chill of 15 below. But you know what? The cold's not going to stop me. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the cold. But you know what? I'm persevering. I'm pushing through. And so will this podcast here as it's the day after the AFC and NFC Championship Games. A lot to discuss there. But uh, thanks for tuning in. If this is your first time getting a chance to listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports, I welcome you aboard and thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast. And if this is your first, 10th, 20th, or now 49th time listening to the j Rose podcast, I welcome you guys back. We'll touch on the games in just a moment. We'll also get into the MLB hot stove, what's left of it, which is quite a bit. Nothing on the Harper Machado front. What's happening with Dallas Keuchel? What's happening with Craig Kimbrell? The Yankees make another move. I tell you, we're now a month away from pitchers and catchers, less than that, and still a lot of players haven't been signed, top players at that. We'll also touch on two of the hottest teams in sports. They reside right here in our backyard in Brooklyn, for the most part, Long Island too with the Islanders. The uh, Islanders are in first place, and the Brooklyn Nets, who are now game over 500 as they host a game later today at the Barclays Center against the Sacramento Kings. But enough of that. We'll get to what everybody's going to talk about, not only now, but until pretty much the Super Bowl and then some, are both of these championship games that took place yesterday. And the NFL, as periodically I like to get on Goodell's case, and rightfully so, I'm sure whatever he ate last night, and he topped it off with probably a Sauvignon Blanc, certainly went down as smooth as it could possibly be. But then again... He had to choke a little bit because the officiating, not only in this whole postseason, but both of these games were absolutely abominable. Especially the first game, which we're going to touch on in just a moment between the Rams and the Saints. But the NFL hit a grand slam. The sports universe or the football gods gave them a 3-0 fastball and boy, they hit it about 5,000 feet, let alone 500. That's how yesterday's games played out. Two overtime games in a championship setting. First time ever in the history of the league. First time since 2012, the 2012 season, that both road teams win and go to the Super Bowl where you had that that was San Francisco winning in Atlanta and you had Baltimore winning in New England. And funny enough, that was the last time uh, New England had lost at home in a championship setting. But this time, of course, they were on the road. And all you can take out of yesterday's games, besides how thrilling, exciting, riveting, edge of your seat, action-packed, just unbelievable football that you could possibly watch. But of course, it's going to be marred by two things. One, the call in the Saints game, which obviously we'll get to, and I have some very interesting opinions on that. And B, that the Patriots are back again. For the fourth time in five years, for the fifth time in eight years, and for the ninth year, or the ninth time in 18 years. So since this whole run has started, and it's come full circle with the Rams and Patriots to Super Bowl 36, and now Rams and Patriots Super Bowl 53, the New England Patriots have been in the Super Bowl half the times in the last 18 years. Are you sick of it, people? Have you had enough? Hopefully this will be it. Not to say that the Brady-Belichick run will end, but let's just hope and pray that this is the last time we see the Super Bowl forever. But until they're retired or until one of them just somehow, some way goes off into the sunset, this run will continue if those two guys are there. All right, enough said. Let's just get to these games and we'll start off with the first game. Now, the Saints... Obviously had multiple opportunities to put this game away early. They had the drive there where they ended up kicking the field goal. They had the touchdown drop from the tight end Arnold, which was a tough play. I understand Aikman and company had said, you know, he should have caught it. And possibly he should have, but he had to really make a an acrobatic turn for him to not only just get up to catch the ball, but to bring it in. And he pretty much had it, but as he was bringing it in, he didn't have the full possession and it went off his thigh and onto the ground, so they had to kick a field goal there. But then on the Rams' first possession of the game, Todd Gurley, who was MIA, let's face it. Now, I don't know if he was injured. I don't know if he just wasn't right for whatever the reason, but he was certainly put in a doghouse, or so it seemed. You've seen him on the sidelines warming up and trying to stay focused and trying to stay just prepared to come into the game at any point. And you pretty much didn't see Todd Gurley in the second half, but he had a... Ball go through his hands and was intercepted there deep in Rams territory. And that was converted into a field goal where it was 6-0. So the Saints right there had two golden opportunities to come away with touchdowns, had field goals. Then they get the ball back again, so they march down. 
They get a big penalty on fourth and two where they pulled the Rams off sides. Michael Brockers, the defensive lineman. And then they get the touchdown there to make it 13-0. And with the noise crowd and as amped up as that building was, the Rams were about to go three and out again. They needed something in the worst way and they were at their own 30. So what did they do? They had a fake punt, which was converted there. Their punter, Johnny Hecker, would have completed pass there to Sam Shields. They get a first down. They moved the chains. They quieted the crowd a little bit. They ended up kicking a field goal there, which was key. Because at least they got points on the board and they had to do something. Because Sean McVay, and he's the golden boy. He's the wonder kid now in the NFL as far as coaches are concerned. And he's turning 34 on Thursday. To me, that was a very wise play. Was it risky? Absolutely. But he looked at that juncture of the game saying, I need to do something. We don't want to go down three scores. Whether it be by a field goal at 16-0 or even worse, a touchdown at 20 to nothing. So that was step number one for Sean McVay as far as getting his team back in the game, and he certainly did. And then from there, they just chipped away. They made it 13-10. Going into the half with a big touchdown. The start of the second half, the Rams went three and out, and then the Saints went down the field, scored a touchdown at 20-10. I know a lot of the trick plays that kills you if you're a Saint fan and Sean Payton using Taysom Hill. And listen, I understand that that's a nice little luxury to have. He's a very athletic player. Has a good arm. I'm sure he's probably at some point going to be the heir apparent to Drew Brees at quarterback. But whether it was at 13 or 6 nothing, I should say, when they were going in for that touchdown, the play that I mentioned when Brockers was drawn off sides, right before that at 3rd and 4, you have Taysom Hill going on the center, handing off to Alvin Kamara. I mean, what was that? For that, just keep Drew Brees in the game. And he's a little bit in love, too much in love with Taysom Hill, even when you have Drew Brees sometimes, you know, out wide left. And he's about to, you know, go ahead and make a pass play or do whatever type of run pass option that was in the cards there. But be that as it may, so now you have a 20 to 10 lead. And now the Rams come back, which was huge because now you're late in the third quarter. They get the touchdown there to make it 20 to 17. Who knows what would have happened if the Saints stopped them there. And then now as you get into the fourth quarter, you have the... Rams, who are trying to get back in the game or trying to get the equalizer or even go ahead. They had that fourth down at the goal line, one yard to go. A lot of people thought McVay was going to go for it. They kicked the field goal, which I thought was a smart play. Two reasons. One, I get it that it's Sean McVay, Ram offense. He's been very aggressive. Hey, he went for it on fourth and five at his own 30. Why can't he go for it there on fourth and goal? Well, that's a play where... On the road, you have to get the equalizing points, at least to me. Because if he didn't make that play, then of course, everybody's going to look at Sean McVay and they're going to pound him today. To me, I thought it was wise to get the points. You want to get the game tied. Even if it was at the one-yard line, the Rams weren't going to be guaranteed to go three and out there, to go have the Saints go three and out. And from the standpoint of just getting that equalizer, keeping that game stable, you certainly don't want the Saints to go on a long extended drive there. I forgot how much time was left on the clock. But still, I think it was plenty of time to go there in the game. And as it was, just getting the equalizer at that point, to me, just showed that all the pressure was going to be on the Saints. Now, granted, I understand if they're at the one-yard line, you figure that, hey, if the Rams could somehow, some way, just have them go three and out, what difference does it make? But no way. On the road, get those points. If you're at home, maybe a different story. Or who knows, maybe if you're looking at it late third quarter, well, you know you have a whole quarter to go, but he wasn't going to play around there. So to me, I thought that was wise of him to do that. So now you have a 2020. So now let's just fast forward and let's just get right to it. So now on the final drive for the Saints in regulation, here you have that big third down play where he finds, Drew Brees finds Ted Ginn on the sideline there, 54 yards or whatever it was. What was LaMarcus Joyner doing on that play? Beyond me, it it almost seemed like he was trying to jump up to either bat it away or intercept it. Obviously, he and his momentum just went a little bit too forward. I thought it was going to get picked off. Ginn comes up with the ball. You're thinking, oh, geez, this game is over. How is this going to be possible? So on and so forth. And now you're thinking that LaMarcus Joyner and the Rams are certainly going to be the GOAT and have to go home living with that play on their heads 
And it's weird how football is. You know, I, I thought back for some reason not to compare both games, but it made me think about that Jermaine Curse play in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Now, of course, it was the lucky bounces, whatever, but you just look at that play and you think, oh my God, the game's over. But then here it was now, first and goal. Oh, it wasn't at the goal. It was at the 15-yard line. So first and 10. And the first play, what was it after the two-minute warning? An incomplete pass. They were going for a screen. What was that about? How I looked at that play was that, hey, you got to go run that ball on first down. And I understand people are going to say, well, Jay Reels, he's trying to end that game there. He's trying to make a play. We all know the Saints, they could dink and dunk at times and get that screen pass going. But still, the clock is the enemy for the Los Angeles Rams. You run there on first down, they got to start burning timeouts. So what does that do? They don't have to burn a timeout there. So as it was, Sean Payton was in the wrong big time by coming up with a screen that went incomplete. Then you got second down. We know what happened there. No gain. So now third and 10 and here we go. The big spotlight. Pass to the flat to Tommy Lee Lewis. Nikel Roby Coleman interferes with him. At first, I looked at that play. I was like, ooh, that's bang, bang. No flag. When you see the replay, it is as bright as day. Not only did Coleman interfere with the play, but he went helmet to helmet. No call. I'll be the first to say that was an atrocity. And weird to say that the officiating, as we all know, throughout the regular season, they can't help but throw flags. They love throwing the flag. In this whole postseason, and we could go through some of these plays, but we're only talking about yesterday, they let these teams play. But to me, that was as obvious. Let's face it, a blind man would have seen that play. That's how bad it was. Peyton's pointing to the Jumbotron. The Saints are exasperated. Roby Coleman in the postgame says that, hey, he knew he had to interfere. He didn't want the guy with a walking touchdown. So now here you go. They kick a field goal, 23-20, a minute, 40-some-odd to go. And the Rams get the ball at one timeout. So what do they do? They march down the field, they kick a field goal, Zerline, clutch kick, 48 yards, the game is tied. Then we go into the overtime, Saints get the ball. Saints are at midfield. Pressure, Dante Fowler Jr., in the face of Breeze, balls up in the air, intercepted. And then they only gained 15 yards on that drive. And then Greg Zerline, who had just a tremendous ending of this game, boots a 57-yard field goal, which at the time I thought to myself, I understand he's Greg the leg, but he's money from inside 40. And past 50, I think his numbers were four for seven, which is not bad, but at the same time, you know, it's not six for seven. Well, he's not perfect by any stretch. So now here you go, 57 yards. I understand that McVay gambled there, and people could say, well, hey, if he didn't gamble for the touchdown at 20 to 17, why would he gamble here? He probably just had so much trust in his kicker, knowing that he had two kicks in that fourth quarter, including that 48 yarder, to push the game in overtime. He felt, hey, perfect conditions, he could do it. And sure enough, he split those uprights. He probably got hit from 67. Now, here's what I'm going to talk about the call. And why this did not lose the game for the Saints. Now, did they get jerked? Without question. No ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. But let's face it. The Saints could have made a stop there. Why can the Saints defense rise to the occasion at that point? Where were the defensive coaches? Where was Peyton to say, hey, listen, guys. We need to stop. Let's go home. We'll get to the Super Bowl. That's it. This play will not be remembered at all. Where was that? Not only that, they had the ball in overtime. At midfield. All right, Breeze was pressured. He tried to make a play. Intercepted. And then at 57 yards, he iced the kicker. He iced Zerline and then obviously made the kick. But it's not as if the Saints didn't have opportunities. You know, it's not as if that play, as big as it was, and that's all that everybody's going to talk about from now until the cows come home. And this is a game that's going to stick with the Saint fan forever. And when you compound that with how they lost in the postseason last year, I mean, you can't think of two back-to-back crushing playoff losses ever. Maybe go back to the Cleveland Browns, 86-87, between the drive and the fumble. That's probably as close as it gets. And maybe even worse because the city of Cleveland has never seen the Super Bowl. But with that said, to me, as bad as that call was, that didn't make the game in this regard because the Saints had an opportunity to stop the Rams from scoring. And I've argued that with my guy Jimmy on Facebook He's saying, oh, well, you got to look at that call. There's no way. The officials are bad. You know, I'm paraphrasing, of course. The officials are terrible. They wouldn't have been in that position. 
Well, hey, how about Sean Payton on first down running the ball? With the Rams, all right, they'd have to use one of their timeouts. They're running it again on second. Then they're burning their last timeout. And then, of course, you got the interference call, which you get. But still, that was not a smart play. You gave them that timeout in their back pocket where they would have burned the two timeouts. They would have had no timeouts left on the clock if they would have gotten, you know, they would have gotten the ball back with a minute, whatever to go, if you want to throw that play in the mix. And if their defense could just somehow, some way, not that they play prevent, but just make some stops, and that's it. They were off to Atlanta in Super Bowl 53. And I get, listen, people, I get that the call was enormous. But there's no excuse. To me, the play, it did, right, I understand it defied the game in that regard. And I said that a minute ago, it didn't define the game. It did. It's marred by it. But it's not definitive of the performance of the Saint defense that could have made a play or some plays to stop the Rams from even getting into field goal position. And then in the overtime for the offense, for themselves to go march down the field, putting in the end zone, and then they would have gone home. Which is what the Patriots did. You know, Drew Brees had every chance. He could have said, you know what? I'm taking this home. Forget about this. We're not kicking a field goal. Let's just march down the field and that's it. Did it happen? Of course not. I understand. Well, Jerry is not that simple. I get it. But you know what? They had opportunities afterwards. It's not as if they lost that, that final play. That play, the pass interference, was the end of the game. I hate to bring this up to like JD and all the Red Sox fans back in 86, but... When Buckner, the ball went through his legs, that wasn't game seven. They still had game seven and up three, nothing in game seven going into the bottom of the sixth inning. So the Saints were up 23-20 with a minute 40 to go. The Rams had one timeout. Make a stop. And I get it. People are going to say, well, Jerry Rose, you're not a Saints fan. You don't know. You don't know the pain. If, that was the if I was the Steelers, I'd be sick today. I mean, it goes without question. I'd be beyond sick. But you know what? I would look at my defenses, man. Make a stop. Can we make a stop? Forget about even getting pressure on Goff. I mean, it would have been nice too. You know, and they blitzed and they didn't get there. They picked it up well, give them credit. But at the same time, can defensive back, a linebacker, can somebody make a play? Or Breeze, an overtime. All right, let's march this ball right down and let's go home. Did he do that? No. And that's not knocking Drew Breeze. That's not knocking his career. None of that. But listen, number 12, and I get it, he's Brady and one of the greatest, probably arguably the best of all time. What did he do? He marched down the field and put that sucker in the end zone because they probably knew there's no way, shape, or form if we give these guys the ball, even at 31-31 or 34-31, they're going to put the sucker in the end zone. So that's what you got. And if you're a Saint fan, I understand the aftermath. Breeze, oh, we'll be back. Tough pill to swallow, et cetera, et cetera. And Peyton, of course, he came out in the refs. Rightfully so. I mean, you'd be sick to your stomach as well. But you know what? He has to look in the mirror himself and say, hey, I should have ran on first down. Or you know what? My defense could have made a stop. And that's my point, people. You know, everybody is going to look at that play. Oh, you know, that's they blew it. And, you know, they should have won that game. Well, yeah, they should have won the game. If their defense would have made a stop there. No, but it doesn't matter because if it wasn't, if it was pass interference, they would have milked the clock down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get that too. But you know what? It didn't happen. Unfortunately, it did not happen. And people are going to say, well, that's why it didn't happen because of the play. But all right, but still, have your defense go out there and make a stop. And if you're a Saint fan today, and who that nation, you don't know if you're going to be back here. You don't know if you're going to get to this point where you had a one seed, all these games that you won in your building with the Breeze and Peyton combo. They were 6-0 and going into that game yesterday. And it's just unfortunate that this one play ruined it, but... At the same time, they still could have done something about it. And that's my point. As for the Rams, I've said about McVay. Now he's the youngest coach in Super Bowl history. Now he's got to win it. He's got to win it because the youngest coach to win a Super Bowl was Mike Tomlin when he won Super Bowl 43. He was 34 years old. And McVay will be 33 on Thursday. But the Rams, give him credit. They fought out of that 13 nothing hole with, the, sound, with the, the way the building was. The crowd was just, they were the 12th man. And they stuck with it. Jared Goff had a great game. He really stuck with it too. Didn't fold, didn't bend. Certainly played well. 
I got to give credit to Aaron Donald. Now, Donald didn't have any sacks, but he had some pressures. He made some plays. And Ndamukong Su had two sacks. You know, Donald had that one play where he had that thrown for loss there where the play blew up, where Ndamukong Su was the tag team there in that overtime. You know, Dante Fowler, of course, with the big play. Defense showed up. Give him credit. And they're going to need one more performance like that to go against this Patriot juggernaut. But it's amazing to think. Here, here's this before we go to the Patriot game. Here's a team that left St. Louis to go to LA. They're waiting to get a stadium built. As we know, it'll be, I think, not next year, the following, 2021. Their first year out there, they had Jeff Fisher and a new quarterback in Jared Goff. After that first year, Fisher was gone. Goff was being labeled a bust. Remember, he was the number one overall pick. Sean McVay comes in, and in two years, they have now not only made it to the postseason, won a division last year, but now they've made it to the Super Bowl. And everybody's singing Sean McVay's praises, and rightfully so, give him credit. But now he has to seal the deal because he could be this innovative offensive mind and the future of this league as far as coaching is concerned. Everybody's looking for that offensive guy, everything. But you know what? He's got to win this game. Because as we all know, getting to the Super Bowl is good and it looks good on your resume, but nobody's going to remember you if you win it. Or if you lose it, I should say. Excuse me. Of course, everybody's going to remember when you win it, Jay Reels. But nobody's going to remember. Remember 2001, Pats, Rams? Yeah, everybody remembers who lost. Remember who the coach was? Mike Martz, who in that era was the offensive genius of that time. Greatest show on turf. Where's Mike Martz today? That's my point. And now here they are, L.A. I wonder how the people in St. Louis feel. Three years removed, like, geez, that was our team. And technically it wasn't when you think about it because Goff was there. I mean, Gurley played the one year in St. Louis before they moved. So this is a whole new regime with Goff and McVay. So I understand maybe that some of the St. Louis Ram fans were looking at it like, ah, geez, that should be us going there, whatever. And I wonder how, if they're excited, I'm sure they got to be excited. Why not? So there you go. There's the NFC side. And as far as the AFC side is concerned, the brilliance of Brady and Belichick resurface again. You had some bad calls in this game. Certainly not like you saw in the first game. That's for sure. But the start off with the brilliance of Belichick, him running the ball the way he did to start that game and getting that opening touchdown, to me, and they knew the weather was going to be a factor, not to say that that was going to stop their passing game by any stretch, but them methodically going down the field in that opening drive, and then even in the second drive, which ended up in a surprise, I mean, talk about shock of all time, Tom Brady getting picked off there in the end zone, where it could have been 14-0, but instead it was 7 nothing. And they just dominated that whole first half. I mean, the Chiefs, they couldn't do anything on offense. In fact, the Patriots, their defense were putting pressure on Mahomes to the tune of three sacks. Although Tyreek Hill had that one big play down over there on the uh, right sideline, he was pretty much a non-factor. Their running game was non-existent, although... Damian Williams had a couple touchdowns, one in the air and one on the ground. But the thing is that when you look at these trends in the NFL, last week everybody looked at Damian Williams. Oh my God, 24 for 129. He didn't do anything on the ground. But he did get the two touchdowns, so give him credit for that. But the brilliance of Belichick was to say, we need to try to run this ball as much as we can to wear this defense down. And that's not to say that they got guys like Corey Dillon of Patriot teams in the past. Or guys that are just going to just pound the rock down the field. Like that type of big back. They don't have that. But they certainly even have in those short plays. Those plays to James White. Sony Michelle who had another good game. He had to back up what he did against the Chargers last week. And those small plays will just continue to wear them down. To the point where I was looking at this game. And I said this reminded me of Super Bowl 51. Because before I even get to the overtime, when you look at how long the chief defense was on the field, and granted that they came up with some plays in big times. Of course, I know everybody in Kansas City is going to look at D. Ford and say, oh, why? When he was offsides on the pick there, which would have iced the game at 28-24. But him being, he was in a neutral zone. I mean, it wasn't even a thing where he was just lined up terribly. 
Uh, that's inexcusable. What happens? I mean, geez. Just terrible on his part. But when you look at that fourth quarter where 38 points were scored, back and forth, up and down the field, crazy plays, the catch by Chris Hogan, that one-handed play on the third down, which extended the drive. To me, that's a microcosm of this whole Patriot run. Because it's those pl- it's plays like that that people are going to remember for the rest of their lives. Now, I understand in the scope of this game because there was still scoring after that. But that was a huge catch. It's fourth down there. Chiefs got the ball. Who knows? They may put in the end zone. Game's over. And I, I know Patriot fans, don't give me all with a helmet catch, Tyree. Hey, listen, you guys have gotten break by break by break. And you need those to win championships. We get that. And here it was. You had this one. That Hogan play. But when the knockout 15-round heavyweight fight was continuing to go on, whether it was Gronkowski down the sidelines against Eric Berry before they punched it into the end zone, whether it was the big play to Sammy Watkins, and remember, the the Patriots had that fumble recovery there, but if it wasn't for J.C. Jackson getting a defensive hold, that extended that drive. Then you had those crazy calls. I mean, you had some calls that could have been pass interference on the cornerback what's his name Nelson on the Chiefs you also had that roughing the passer the phantom roughing the passer Chris Jones and I get that steratore in the booth because of the angle that Cleet Blakeman had seen it with the arm going down they probably thought it hit his head meanwhile it was a big whiff just terrible calls but when you knew that even Harrison Bucker and give him credit that was a clutch kick for him as the Chiefs came back down the field to get the equalizer to tie the game and to push it in overtime this is where it reminded me of the Super Bowl. When the Pats won the coin toss, I said to myself, they're going to win this game on this drive. They're not going to kick a field goal. That defense has been gassed. It's been out there all night long. And sure enough, they converted on three key third downs. And when you think about it, the third downs were the game. The Patriots were 13 for 19 on third down. 13 for 19. That's insanity. And we know the Chief defense, they gave up the most first downs in history of the league. So that doesn't come to be as a shock. But between D. Ford, Justin Houston, Chris Jones, they couldn't lay a finger. And they got some pressure late in that overtime. Justin Houston was in the, in the mix there. But they couldn't lay a finger on Brady. And now, here it was. As they marched down the field, and Julian Edelman made just tremendous plays. And we all know he's a winning player. And I'm going to get to what Boomer Esiason said about him, which was an absolute... I almost fell out of my chair when I heard him say this, but... Then they get the touchdown. 37. When you knew there was it first and goal, pretty much that was it. I mean, give me a break. Retzberger, then he runs for three, four. And I said, anything short of Pete Carroll, Brainlock, Marshawn Lynch. I mean, you just continue to run that ball. There's no way to pass the ball. There you go, Pete Carroll. I'm sure if you watch that at home, he probably choked on his, uh, I don't know, his apple crumb cake as he was watching that, I'm sure. But here it was. They punched it in, 37-31. And the Patriots, yet again, go to another Super Bowl. And what could you say? And the brilliance of Brady, he had a couple of picks. He had that one late pick, which was overturned, as I mentioned, in the D Ford offsides. But Brady always finds a way. And that's why, listen, you could argue from the, here to the cows come home as far as who's the greatest of all time, him or Joe Montana. I mean, the guy's made it now nine Super Bowls. Nine. And now he's on the verge of winning a sixth. Uh, what could you say? There, there really isn't much to say about it. And Belichick, we all know, listen. Like I said, part of Belichick's brilliance was running the football the way he did and they got all those plays and just wore down that defense to the tune of, what was it, 94-47. to 47. I mean, what could you say? To me, that was the Super Bowl 51 all over again. Chief defense ran out of gas. And people could tell me, well, Jay Reels, why couldn't the Chiefs defense make a stop? You're over here bitching about the Saints making a stop. Well, was, let's face it. Did you watch the game? 94 plays on offense for the Patriots? I mean, give me a break. Anybody be tired. And we all know the history there. Like like I said, it's come full circle. I mentioned this on Twitter last night. Rams, Patriots in Atlanta. I'm not going to get into preview in the game. We'll do that next Monday's podcast. But as far as the footnotes or the storylines of course you're going to have the the first storyline I think over the top of my head is obviously it comes full circle Rams Patriots are going to go back to the game which is actually going to be played what is it 17 years ago to the day on Super Sunday February 3rd so that's number one 
Thankfully for the Ram fan, they don't have to worry about Adam Vinatieri being in the building. Although Gostowski's a good kicker in his own right, but you have to worry about Adam Vinatieri. And the game's indoors, so you got to worry about that. You're going to have the pupil going up against the teacher. Pretty much the could be a passing of the torch between the old guard to the new guard with Bill Belichick to show him if gay. You're going to have that. That's a storyline. Other than that, off the top of my head, I mean, there aren't going to really be any specific players. You know, I'm not going to get into matchups and things like that. Although the one thing that does stick out to me right now is that the defensive line, if that game is going to be won right there, the offensive line, the first thing that comes to mind, especially when the Pats are on offense, what they do with Donald and Damakong Su, even Dante Fowler Jr. You want to throw in Michael Brockers, you could do that. Corey Littleton's a good linebacker. That's going to be an interesting matchup there. But as far as the game and all that, you know, we still got plenty of time to talk about it. So, And one last thing, Boomer Sison, And I like him. I got, you know, mad respect for him. He hosted a morning show here in New York, WFAN. I get that. But for him to come out yesterday after the broadcast to say that Julian Elfin, I don't care what people say, he's a Hall of Fame player. He is. Are you nuts, Boomer Sison? And for the Patriot fan out there, it was like, yeah, why can't he be a Hall of Famer? Come on, man. The guy's won two Super Bowls. He's this. He's clutch. He has the second most receptions in playoff history, so on and so forth, behind Jerry, behind, you know, Jerry Rice. First of all, has Julian Edelman ever been a first-team All-Pro? No. Has he been a second-team All-Pro? Chances are no. Third-team? No. When you go to the Hall of Fame, and I get it that it's a lot about the postseason. Understood. But you know what? Not to try to compare different sports or whatever, but, you know, Robert Ory won seven rings. Is he a Hall of Famer? You know, just because a guy who has a ton of postseason success and not much in the regular season, I'm sure he's had good regular seasons. And, you know, don't let me pull up Elliman's stats here, but, you know, you're going to run down a list of top wide receivers in the league. Let's just go this year. We don't even go to years past. Is he better than DeAndre Hopkins? Next. Michael Thomas? Next, who had a quiet game, by the way. We didn't talk about him, Michael Thomas. Excellent job by Aqib Tlaib, which was one of the big matchups in that Saint game. So, kudos to Tlaib. And he's going to need to bring that, to obviously, two weeks from now against his former team, the Patriots. Is he better than Julio Jones? Is he better than Antonio Brown? Is he better than Odell Beckham Jr.? Those are five guys right there. And I'm sure there's a couple others that I haven't even thought about right now. That, let's face it, he is in not even anywhere in that ilk. And this is not to knock Julian Edelman. Listen, he's a winning player. He could play on my team any day of the week. He's tough. He's gritty. He's everything you want in a football player, let alone a wide receiver. But is he a Hall of Famer? Come on. Let's pump the brakes there, Boomer. I mean, please. He's Julian Edelman. He's not Randy Moss. He's not Terrell Owens. He's not Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, Fred Bolitnikov. We'll go through the whole list. He's none of those guys. The guy is a slot receiver on a good team. And I understand on this team, he's their feature receiver because the team has no receivers. But that's, to me, part and parcel of the quarterback and even more importantly, the coach. Because you could put me a wide receiver on that team and guess what? I could be Julian Edelman. He plays in that system. Anywhere else, he's not doing that. And not trying to compare him to Danny Amendola because he doesn't have a quarterback and their coach has been long gone. But let's face it. Why was Amendola so good in big spots in New England? Quarterback? Coach? Edelman elsewhere? He will put nowhere near any of the numbers and be in any of those positions that he's in now. So, Boomer? uh Uh-uh. Relax with that. All right, so we turn our attention now to some winter sports. Over the course of uh, not only the next two weeks, but next two months. Because we have one more football game left. And we all know that's a spectacle. That's going to be one of those. Everybody's going to get together. Rally around the rally around the troops. Get them uh, to bring over whatever food and liquor. And make a big party out of it. So to me, although there is one football game left. But it's more of an event than it is just an actual game. As far as the winter sports are concerned. I tell you. The run that both the Brooklyn Nets and the Islanders are. And I'm going to combine both of these. It's just been fascinating. Now, the Islanders, of course, and I've mentioned this, both teams in the last couple of podcasts, but more so now because the Islanders, who have won five in a row, in this five-game winning streak, they've only given up three goals. 
mostly on the strength of Robin Leonard and of course Thomas Grice has been a part of that mix too. But five in a row and 15 in the last 18 to catapult themselves into first place in the Metropolitan Division. If I would have said this to you July 7th of last year that the Islanders are going to lose their best player all right, they bring in Lula Morello and a Stanley Cup winning coach that who just won the Cup in, Barry Trotz. But you're going to lose your best player. And on January 21st, this morning, and after a slow start, I might add, that they'd be in first place, what would you say? Be like, Reels, there's no way on God's green earth this is going to happen. Well, guess what? And listen, we all know we can't get crazy. It's a good story. It's a feel-good story for this organization considering losing their best player, now that they're playing... Games on Long Island in the old barn at the Nassau Veterans Memorial. And you want to rally around that if you're an Islander fan. And I am. And it's great. But we all know it's only January. We got to continue to see this build. There's still plenty of season left to go. I mean, listen, as of what was it? A week and a half ago, they were the first team in the wild card. And two weeks from now, who knows? They could probably be the second team in the wild card on the outside looking in. That's how bunched up the, not only the division is, but just the whole conference. And you wonder if the Islanders, will they make a move here? You know, they do need some defense. I mean, let's face it. The team can score goals. The team is gutty players. You know, Cal Clutterbuck, who had two goals yesterday in the game against Anaheim. I mean, he's a guy that was pretty much a fourth line Winger, pretty much his whole career, and now he's become a very good two-way player. We know about Barzal. We know, you know, listen, we could go down the list of these lunch pail guys that they have on their team, and you would think that, wait a minute, how is this team in first place? And listen, they just had just an unbelievable run here. But again, as much as we could smell the roses and look at this and say, oh, hey, the Islanders are back, but you still got to ask in the back of your head, are they? Because I'm sure as giddy as the Islander fan could be today, and and listen, it feels good. It's great. But is there a lot of trust that you want to put forth in this team? Do you want to push all your chips to the middle of the table to think that this team can make a deep run in April, May, and into June when you have a Tampa team that's pretty much dominated the sport all year? And I understand the Islanders beat them 5-1 a week or so ago, and they actually play them this week. So we'll see how they match up again with them later on. But I got a Tampa team that's in the top of the conference, the top of the sport right now. Toronto, who they've had a very good year. You know, there's still going to be a lot. We all know Pittsburgh, Washington. We know their pedigrees. So as much as we want to wave those blue and orange pom-poms, there's still a lot of hockey to be played. And the same goes for the Brooklyn Nets when you look at what they've had to overcome. 8-18, and 18, they came off an eight-game losing streak. They followed up with a seven-game winning streak. And you just look at the games this past week. They annihilated the Celtics at home. They had just one of the most improbable wins in Houston. Where they were down 11 points with two minutes to go in regulation. And then in overtime, they were down seven points. And they won. And I understand people could say, oh, no Chris Paul, no Clint Capella. Harden hit, went for 57 that game and they still lost. And then they go to Memphis. No, I'm sorry. They go to Orlando. My apologies. They go to Orlando, they're down 22 in the game, and they come back and win the game. Now, same thing with the Islanders. We know that the Eastern Conference, Toronto, Milwaukee, Philly, Boston, there isn't a prayer to think that the net team could go deep in the postseason, let alone a round. But it makes you think to say, hey, can they make a move? They have plenty of room under the cap going into next year, and I understand that's something for the offseason, but will they somehow, some way, make a deal to get themselves to try to push themselves up to a five seed, maybe even a four seed? Now, they're still four and a half games behind, but will the Brooklyn Nets have that mentality to say, you know what, we're not only building for the future, but we're ahead of schedule right here. We didn't think that this was going to be possible. Can they do that? Now, the one thing, and I said this going back to that NBA preview I did with Gerald, what was it, in October. You wonder if there's going to be any interest in an NBA player wanting to come play for a Brooklyn Nets team. And a Brooklyn Nets team that 
not only has position for one, but for two max contracts. And they've already signed Dinwiddie to a good deal. They're going to have guys come off the books and Damari Carroll, Alan Crabb, I believe, has one more year. But they have flexibility. They're certainly a lot more appealing than the Garden because who knows what's going to happen with Porzingis if he's going to come back this year at all. And not only that, he's going to be a restricted free agent. That's number one. Yes, they do have room to bring in a max free agent. Who knows if KD goes there. Again, that's for you know five, six months to talk about down the road. But Brooklyn, again, not much of a history, especially in the NBA. Yes, they had the J-Kid era, which was their golden years, the back-to-back NBA finals. We all know that. But you wonder, will this team, just like the Islanders, and that's why to me they're hand-in-hand here, will they be able to push the right buttons to try to get this team deep into the postseason? I understand basketball is different because it's very top-heavy. And the NHL, same deal. But the thing with the NHL is you got a hot goalie and you ride that sucker, who knows? They could take you around maybe two. NBA, it's not like that. And because the Nets don't have that dominant force, that one superstar player, you know, it's not like that guy's going to carry you. You know, is D'Angelo Russell going to be that guy? Spencer Dinwiddie going to be that guy? You know, so they don't have the those type of pieces in place to make that deep run unless they try to bring somebody in. Who that person could be? Certainly remains to be seen, but I'm sure that's one thing that the brass out in Kings County are wondering whether or not should we do something like that or just be patient, ride this out, because we are a step ahead. We are, we've arrived a little bit early, and that come this offseason, then that's when they take the leap to try to get themselves up to the top of the Eastern Conference. And speaking of that Eastern Conference, I know last week, and everything that's going on with the Celtics, even though they've won three in a row. I know a lot has come out with that whole Kyrie calling LeBron James in reference to that three-game losing streak when they lost to the Heat. Then Orlando, where they, Kyrie was just upset and came out in the press talking about, you know, I don't know if we're ready to win. To paraphrase, of course. And then he actually called LeBron because he even admitted to him and to the media how, yeah, he was that young player, 22 years old, didn't know anything about it, and obviously had to, not to use the sixer term, trust the process, but a lot of controversies come out of that in a sense where it's like, oh, now Kyrie, who's bitching and moaning about his teammates, whether taking too many threes, not attacking the basket, not playing smart. Well, wait a minute, I was that guy once upon a time. Now I get it. And then, of course, we all know how that whole fallout went into Cleveland between him and LeBron and wanting his own team and so on and so forth. So, I don't know if it was right for Kyrie to come out and air that to the media. And it's tough because he, I know he wants to win and he wants to be successful and coming off the heels of what happened last year, you know, one game away from the finals that he didn't even participate in. But still, he knows that this team could play a lot better than it has and he didn't keep it in-house. Which I understand in this day and age, a lot of players are going to do that. They're going to be very close to the vest with what they say and how they feel. And Kyrie obviously let his emotions get the best of him where, for all intents and purposes, he threw his teammates under the bus. But we'll see how that uh, transpires here in the days and weeks to come. And I didn't realize that the trade deadline, which is usually like a couple days after the NBA All-Star break, I believe it's like February 4th or the 5th, which I think that's very early, but... And, you know, obviously, I don't make the rules. I don't know any better. So, But there's just something to keep an eye out down the road as far as the NBA is concerned. And I know Golden State's not back in the mix. They've won seven in a row. They spanked Denver last week, which a lot of people thought, oh, that could be a statement game for Denver. And we all saw what happened there. Curry you know, hit for 51 and a million threes. So now we'll focus uh, more of our attention there. And obviously, the Zion wagon down in... Chapel Hill, or was it, yeah, down in North Carolina with the Duke Blue Devils. So now that football slowly but surely will fizzle out here, although we do have the one big game and still have a couple more shows to put the NFL season to bed, the winter sports will certainly roost its uh, ugly head, and I'm not talking about the sports itself, but the time of year. And that's when you can get that slow period because there's going to be a lot of NBA, NHL, whatever, hot stove stuff, the tournament, 
that's going to lead you into the spring. And don't worry, I'll make sure to get you through all that. And also try to get somebody on next week to talk about the Super Bowl. So you'll certainly be uh, up on top of it with everything that's going on here in the world of sports. And before we say goodbye, I mentioned the hot stove. The Yankees signed Adam Adovino to just make that bullpen even that much more stronger. We know they re-signed Zach Britton. Of course, they have Batantis in the mix. We all know about Aroldis Chapman, who's in a walk year, by the way. He could opt out after this year. Just keep that in mind. So the Yankees, and they're looking to deal Sonny Gray. Rumor has it maybe to the Reds, but that may, there may be a snag in that deal, which could happen any day now. So I'm sure next week we could talk about it a little bit more. Here's what you're looking at. Yankees are looking at a rotation. As we all know, they brought in Paxton. They brought CeCe back. Of course, you're going to have Severino, Tanaka. But this is going to be another bullpen-laden team. But we all know that those bullpens are pretty much going to be made for October. But with the way the game has changed over the last couple of years, how Cashman's looking at it is like, well, listen, I'm not looking to trade one of my top prospects for a guy that's going to be on this team for a year or two. So I'm just going to stock my bullpen to the point where, hey, if we get our guys to go five innings, then guess what? Sixth is out of Eno, seventh is... Batances, or he'll be in the eighth inning, excuse me. And he'll just run a J.A. Happ. Of course, I forgot he's the, your fifth starter there too. But you're going to run your bullpen out of Green, Adovino, Batances, Chapman. I feel like I'm missing somebody also too here. I know I'm not in baseball mode. I only got Tommy Canley, but he's not going to come back. David Robertson, of course, is gone. But that's it. That's it. going to be the Yankee strength besides their offense. And Adovino is going to be an interesting character because we all know what he said as far as, oh, if I played against Babe Ruth or I pitched against him, I'd strike him out. Well, I tell you, if he's uh, getting bombed left and right throughout the ballpark, I tell you, the fans will certainly give him a lot of fodder in reference to that. And Babe will be smiling down, laughing at this kid, knowing that uh, you should have uh, eaten those words, my guy. But obviously that's not until a few more uh, months from now before the season gets started. And then to close out, I don't know what's going to happen with this Harper-Machado deal. I mean, you're hearing all these rumors more about Machado than Harper, whether it's the White Sox, whether it's the Phillies, or the Yankees going to be part of this mix. Can we just pick a team already? This has really been dragged out. To the point where I know Chris Bryant, who's been in the news for other reasons with Yadier Molina, which I won't get into, but Chris Bryant has come out and just been aghast with all all that's happening. Oh, I can't believe Harper and Machado aren't signed. Hey, this is baseball now, 2019, people. There's no way the 10-year contract is going to be thrown out there as it was for Albert Pujols and Robinson Cano for past performance. It's going to be, what have you done for me lately? Not because you've hit Hall of Fame numbers in Washington or in Baltimore that now i got to give you the $300 million contract. Not happening. So these players are going to have to pretty much settle for seven for whatever, 175 or 200 because those contracts, and Giancarlo, boy, he hit the mother load. And Jeffrey Loria, the former owner of the Marlins, he was smart and wise to know that, all right, I'm going to give you $325 million, but guess what? That's going to be all backloaded because those first three years, I think, were $30 million. Where, of course, the trade happened to the Yankees, and the Yankees have got 10 years and $295 million of Giancarlo wrapped up into their payroll. So, th- this is a whole new ball game, and it's going to be interesting because there could possibly be a work stoppage in three years. So, just keep that in mind. I know the players aren't going to have it. They're going to want to look for salary cap. But remember, that union, the players' union, is not as strong as it once was when Donald Fear was there. So, and I get it, 1994 was a long time ago. To think, it was 25 years ago. And people like me are going to remember that. But I couldn't care less because that was a long time ago. If this work stoppage comes at this juncture, let's say in the next two, three years... And as it is, baseball, though it's been up on the rise and attendance and it's been better and it, obviously it's not going to be like it once was because this country, it's all about the NFL and even to the NBA to a certain regard. If that union or that uh, labor agreement goes to spit, who knows if baseball's going to come back? As it is, people are bored going to baseball games and they have to have all the pomp and circumstance of these ballparks with all the different sections and Wiffle ball fields, and it has to be entertainment every five seconds. Everybody has to be stimulated. Just can't go and sit in the ballpark and watch a ball game. So imagine if baseball goes on strike, 
to even get the young fan or any of those fans under 30 where at the tip of their fingers they could either play a video game with somebody on the other side of the planet or stream something on Netflix or whatever it is. They'll say, yeah, baseball, who cares? So baseball has to watch it in that regard. So that's going to be it, people. As always, thanks for listening and downloading this podcast. I hope you're entertained. I'm sure you're probably maybe yelling into your headphones or yelling across the room listening to what I had to say about the Saints and the, you know how that one play, although it's going to define the game, but certainly didn't define the season because the Saints certainly had something to do about it, which they did. And there's no argument about that. But uh, again, I do appreciate that. Spread the word to everybody, people. Let everybody know there's a one-man operation. Not only do I host this, but I also edit, produce, write, etc. Sometimes, some way, and down the road, I'll have some people that will uh, be under me to do all the ins and outs, get more word out there to everybody, not only just uh, friends and family, but out there in the sports universe and Part of your participation in doing that is by going to your app, whether your podcast app on your iPhone or wherever you get your podcast, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. All you got to do is just type in a Jerry Rose podcast. Once you hit search, you'll see it come up. Please, whatever you do, just subscribe. Because every time you subscribe, when this comes out on Mondays, roughly around anywhere between 12 noon and 5 p.m. Monday, you could uh, just have it on your phone, listen to it on your commute home or in the gym while you're cooking, cleaning, whatever it may be, as you hear me babble about everything that's going on in the world of diamond, the world of the ice, gridiron, hardcore, uh, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, et cetera, et cetera. As well as the website, jreels.com. Of course, you can send me an email at any of my social media accounts, whether it's jreels, jreels1, that's on the Instagram, jreels1, just a number of Twitter, the jreels podcast on my Facebook page. Also, an email at the jreelspodcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, bring it on. I need to know because I want to continue to bring you everything that's going on in the world of sports and to bring it to you not only in crystal clear audio, but also in a very informative, of course, knowledgeable, incredible platform that this is. And by you subscribing, is only going to enhance that amongst the other podcasts in the sports universe so it could just increase that visibility as well as general interest amongst those out there who are listening to podcasts. So please, if you guys could do your part, not only with hands crossed, I uh, am grateful and thankful for everything, for your love and support for this program. And I'll be back next Monday. Again, we'll do a Super Bowl preview. We'll also see if we can get somebody on. Maybe not for that show, but maybe for later in the week, we'll have somebody handicap that and maybe some of the offseason NFL moves. We'll get into all that at that time here on the J Reels Podcast. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.